Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Well, hello, everyone, and it's my great, great pleasure today to be in conversation with David Lorimer. Big welcome to you, David. Thank you. Wonderful to see you and to hear your voice again. I was just remembering the last time we were together was at Euston House, I think, the Quaker Meeting House in London, and it was a kind of mighty humanitarian event. And it's been a very long time since we've seen each other. And you're now in Cathar country in the south of France. So it's going to be a wonderful opportunity just to really explore with you and catch up with you again. So um, those of you that perhaps aren't so familiar with David Lorimer, David is a writer, a lecturer, a poet and an editor who is also founder of the Character Education Scotland Program Director of the Scientific and Medical Network and former President of Rekin Trust and the Swedenborg Society. David has also been editor of Paradigm Explorer since 1986. And I understand you've just completed your 100th issue, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> Originally, you were a merchant banker. You were then a teacher of philosophy and modern languages at Winchester College. You are the author and editor of over a dozen books, including Survival, Death as Transition, Resonant Mind, The Spirit of Science, Thinking Beyond the Brain, The Protein Crunch, and A New Renaissance. Well, many of those titles have immense significance for right now, I would say. You have edited three books about your teacher, Bienza Duono. Prophet of Our Times was one that you wrote in 1991 and again 2015. Also, The Circle of Sacred Dance and Gems of Love, which is a translation of his prayers and formulas into English. Your new book of essays, A Quest for Freedom, comes out at the end of this year, 2020. David is the founding member of the International Futures Forum, and was an editor of its digest, Omnipedia, Thinking for Tomorrow. Your book on the ideas and work of the Prince of Wales, called Radical Prince, has been translated into Dutch, Spanish and French. 
and you are also the originator of the Inspiring Purpose Values Poster programs, which has reached over 350,000 young people. You're also the chair of the Galileo Commission, and I heard you speaking about Galileo actually at one of the SAND, the Non-Duality in Science conferences, and the Galileo Commission seeks to widen science beyond a materialistic worldview. So, David, I'm just really going to hand over to you at this point and simply to ask you what your understanding of compassion is at this time and how it's shown up in your life. Thank you. Goodness, it's funny hearing one's own CV, as it were, read back like that <coughs> and, <laughs> and putting it in perspective. Uh-huh. Yes, well, this is, this is a, an extraordinary uh, important element, compassion and human quality. We actually had one of the Beyond the Brain conferences. We had Karen Armstrong, who's the founder of the Charter for Compassion, and we heard her talking about compassion. And we also had Paul Gilbert, um, who is the author of a number of books on the same subject. And what struck me from uh, Paul Gilbert's point of view, and this is a sort of parenthesis just to get things going, is is the importance of self-compassion as well as compassion for others, because the the term literally means to feel with um, compassion. Sympathy is, is the equivalent in Greek, sympathos, although compassion is a spiritual quality, whereas sympathy, I wouldn't say, is necessarily. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the word compassion for me is one that I associate more with Buddhism. If you ask what the essence of Buddhism is, then, then you would say, well, it's compassion and wisdom. Mm. I, I would translate that in terms of my, my teacher, Bienza Duno, Peter Dunoff, mm. uh, who lived in Bulgaria from 1864 to 1944. He talks about love and wisdom, and he doesn't specifically talk about compassion, but what he does do, um, which I think is very important, um, is he talks about different levels of love. Uh, and so the first level is really love as a personal sentiment. Then um, there's the level of friendship, which is an expansion. It goes beyond just the personal sentiment. And then the third and fourth levels of love are absolutely critical in my view. And, and these, these are love as a force in the mind. And I'll explain what that is in a moment. And love as a principle in the spirit you've got these levels of love, which immediately starts to differentiate what you're talking about and gives it some, some substance. So let me just recap on these three levels and three and four. Um, level three, love as a force in the mind. Um, he explains that this is when love becomes the essence behind somebody's action. And um, he gives um, I mean, if you, examples of this would be, would be Gandhi, and Albert Schweitzer and Mother Teresa and, and others that you can probably you can probably think of. So that the people embody love in action and it becomes a, a, a fundamental force in their lives. And this, this conveys a sense of strength in love. Love has nothing to do with weakness. Love is about strength. And then the final level, um, love as a principle in the spirit, is the principle of reconciling contradictions of going beyond opposites so if you're going to 
achieve harmony in the world. And here's a musical term. And um, then harmony means to fit together, um, but it also means um, something which is produced out of different elements, which are then harmonized. Now, I don't need to tell you about harmony and the meaning of harmony coming from where you do. Mm. And, and then in terms of how this has influenced my own life, I've tried to um, shape my life with the, the five principles of uh, Ben Seduno. Um, and these are love, wisdom, truth, justice, and goodness, or virtue. And what, what he explained was that this is not a question of a belief system. A principle is not a belief system. A principle is a principle, which is a starting point, uh, and which is a fundamental value. And so the point about these principles is to believe in them, yes, but you're not believing in a proposition, which mm. is what you know, a lot of religion has deteriorated into. Mm. And, and you've got contradictory propositions. You're believing in a force, in a principle. And mm. so the point is to embody the principle in your life. Yes, yes, absolutely. So you're not a, a talking book on spirituality, but you are literally a living embodiment of it. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you can, you can obviously articulate it. Yes. And, but what comes out of people is really their fundamentally is their being or their emanation uh, and you can immediately sense this i mean I, I, for example when i first went to bulgaria um, in 1989 which was just before the wall came down i met one of the um, the senior disciples called uh, krum vajarov and then brother boris there were two of them mm. and they were both luminous beings and um, with brother boris in particular he was 90 um, oh at the time and i i went to see him in his very small um humble simple house and he didn't say very much he didn't speak really any english and i my i was beginning to i had learned bulgarian by then but my bulgarian was fairly rudimentary um, but what struck me was that here was a a ripe human being who was emanating love so i sat in his field and his field emanated this love and indeed compassion Mm, beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. How did you actually hear about him at all? I mean, it fascinates me this. I remember once talking with Irina Tweedy about how it happens, how these callings happen, you know, from these apparently almost invisible beings. You know, you don't hear about them, certainly across the media. They appear either in dreams or they appear, you know, according to sort of calamities within one's life and suddenly you find yourself somewhere you never expected yourself to be. But sort of deeper than that, there is a sort of innate, I don't know how it is for yourself, but a sense of a, of a hunger for something you cannot name. And how did that happen for you? How did that show up for you? Because obviously there must have been something in your life's journey that was calling you to go beyond the boundaries of your own social compound, your own... Yes, beyond, beyond uh, conforming towards transforming. Right. I, I think that's a nice phrase. I'm going to answer your question, as it were, in two parts. First part is um, not my experience but directly, but someone else's, namely Wayne Dyer. Oh, yeah. Um, because Wayne Dyer, in fact, he wrote the foreword to the 2015 uh, edition of um, Profit for Our Times. Um, but what, what happened was that that book came out in 1991. And I have a friend in St. Louis called Phyllis Thorpe. 
And she decided to go and listen to Wayne Dyer giving a lecture in St. Louis. So at the end, uh, she went up to him and said, I'd like to give you a book. And it was my book with a picture of Ben Seduno on the front. And he looked at it and he said, good heavens, this is the man who's been appearing in my dreams for the last few weeks. Oh, my goodness. I love it. Isn't that quite extraordinary? Well, um, brilliant. I totally understand that. Yes, yes. Yes, absolutely. and so it's not as if he's, he's inactive. Yes. Um, so this would have probably been in the maybe the mid-1990s. My own encounter was, um, I used to get, well, you probably remember this, these huge catalogues from Element Books. Yes. Um, and so I was leafing through catalogues, and I, I, saw, I saw a book by, by Omran Mikhail Ivanov called Cosmic Moral Laws. Yeah. And I thought, ah, oh, that's my kind of book. And mm-hmm. um, that sounds really interesting. So I'll order it. And this was 1985, spring 1985. Uh, and then I went, I went with my brother to spend the holiday in Crete for a couple of weeks. And I took this book with me. I read through it and uh, was, was taken by this. And as I, as I normally do, I went back to Element Books. And I ordered a huge number of other books. In fact, I ordered his complete works, which is... 30 volumes of white books and 30 volumes of colored books. Wow. And I started reading through these. And in, in number one, chapter two was on his teacher. And his teacher was Bain Seduno, uh, uh-huh. Peter Dernoff. When I saw his face, I thought, here's the source. Here's the real source of this inspiring teaching. Yes. And, and so and I read a little read the chapter about his life. Uh, and then what I then what I did is I, I looked at I looked this, this was 1985 so there was no internet, yeah. Uh, but but I, I consulted what sources I could, and I knew F- Philip Cargon, who's now more active in Druidry, um, oh. but he he'd already they'd been working with this teaching for some time, and and Danielle Cargon, um, his then wife, and so. I, I then I then I found out that there, there was um, a small number of, of Bulgarians in Paris, and among these was was Anna Bertoli, uh-huh. and yeah. she was in her late eighties, and she'd been producing something called Le Grand de Blé, yes. you know, for thirty or forty years. And I, I taught French, and, and so I I ordered all of these things, or ordered, ordered everything in French. There wasn't very much in English, and then I I, I started reading through these. You know, there's probably well maybe. 15 centimeters of, of these journals. And so I read, read all through that. And then I went to Bulgaria first in, in 1989 and, and up into the Rila Mountains in a, into the area called Musala. Yeah. And the, the, the point about the community life is that we treat each other as brothers and sisters. And we, we get up for, you're climbing quite a long way uh, in the morning to, to watch the sunrise. Yes. And then after that, we do uh, some exercises, and then later on, the panurythmy, which is the sacred dance that he choreographed, and for which he also wrote the music. And the panurythmy um, relates back to these fundamental principles that I was talking about um, a moment ago, uh, and in particular, love, wisdom, and truth. Um, and I can't exactly demonstrate this on an audio, but I can I can give you the the, the principle that. One of the um, uh, exercises is called elevation, mm-hmm. and you're you're moving your hands together uh, mm-hmm. up and down, mm-hmm. and he explains the left hand stands for love and the right hand stands for wisdom, 
Mm. And if, if love and wisdom work together, then you advance in truth. Oh, beautiful. There's so many parallels with my own life as I'm hearing you speak. And of course, everything you're speaking of was completely absent in our own, you know, more left brain education, as rich as that was. And it is so interesting to me is what it is in a human being that somehow seems to know how to move towards that which is absent. I always at school, I was always saying, why am I being taught everything but what I want to know? Uh, which was always very irritating to my teachers. Yes. I'm hearing you speak of teachings that certainly wouldn't have been conveyed or, you know, with all respect to our religious education. Oh, no. It would have been pretty hard to find. Occasionally, maybe you might find a teacher who would embody that information, that understanding. Somehow there is a sixth sense within oneself that seems to know that the body's got to go over there in order to pick up the book or yes. the... I've got a slightly different take on it. Um, uh-huh. Because when I, was, when I was 22, I read a book by uh, Helen Greaves called Testimony of Light. Right. Uh, which is quite a well-known book in sort of spiritual circles, but it's an old one. It first came out in 1969. And in it, um, she described... She was, she was communicating from beyond the grave and the processes that she was going through yeah. At, at that point and uh, one of these is a life review and and that's something i've written about in in one of my books and mm. um, the sort of ethic of interconnectedness the key idea that came out and which i've never quite lost um, in fact i've never lost is the idea of a blueprint mm. and so we come in with this blueprint mm. uh, which i don't think is is rigidly deterministic but it it has the the major themes and calling of your life mm. and intuitively you you can know um, mm. if you're on track so far as this blueprint is concerned and sometimes opportunities will come up mm. and they just click in place yes. um, because they are exactly part of this blueprint and you know this is the next thing you need to do yeah yeah absolutely you're, you're reminding me also of a, i don't know you, you may well have known lanza del vasto uh, and Chanterelle, who lived in... I read a bit of Lance Del Vasto about that same time, and I have one of his books out here. That clearly was part of my blueprint, because I remember somehow I happened upon his books, Return to the Source, and mm. found myself in the late 70s going out there, and just it was the marriage of music with nonviolent action, where they would be standing, sounding, and singing, and praying and meditating beside farmers and shepherds who were being expelled from their farms by the military who were expanding military operations in the south of France and mm. uh, it was the most profound one of the first real doorways for myself in terms of just seeing this interface between the embodiment of love as you described as wisdom as truth as justice and with no attempt to confront or you know conflict inauthentically conflict and that then was followed uh, at a later stage by a lot of time in a contemplative abbey in uh, Maidstone in Kent I was teaching in what was called one of the most dangerous schools in London at the time and I used to go there to recover the abbess was this had been an extraordinary pianist and was a, a mystic their entire liturgy was written by her and it was so beautiful Trevor Huddleston oh yes 
Yeah. Mm. He was a great friend of mine because when I came back from Africa uh, around about the age of 18, he, he became a great friend because he was a bishop in London by that point. And so he was a contemporary with my dad, who was also a bishop in London. Trevor basically sort of restored my faith in remaining in England for that time. And, you know, we used to have incredible conversations about all this. And he said, what you probably should do right now is go to this abbey, St. Mary's Abbey in Kent. What I was seeing there was the beginnings of the revisioning of the Christian logos, if you like. Mm, yeah. It was completely unapologetic. She was a poet. She really embodied the whole Christian mythos in this glorious way. And I used to give them, that was the kind of beginning of, they used to say, we want you to give us voice lessons. <laughs> So it was a good, it was actually a cloistered contemplative abbey. So I was allowed to go behind the scene to give them sound and voice sessions, which gave me an opportunity to connect with them more at a level of just ordinary human friendship, which I think was probably quite a relief probably to them in many ways, because they were literally enclosed. It reminds me of another story about a monastery where they decided for some reason that they were going to stop chanting in their services, whether it was to save time or whatever. Yeah. And, and after after a few months, they all became very despondent and out of sorts. And yeah. so they, they called in somebody to, to um, sort of diagnose the problem. And, and he asked, well, is there anything that you've changed at all in the in the last few months? And said, yes, well, we've actually we just we thought we just stopped chanting. So, well, there you are. They said, <laughs> uh, you know, you you're sort of undermining your your resilience and your uh, emotional health, as it were, by stopping chanting and so they resumed chanting and they regained all their, their original vigor and enthusiasm wow i mean well that has become since then has become a well-known fact hasn't it that uh, singing is great medicine for the soul and spirit of course well that's also part of the discipline in the the ben Saduno teaching because he wrote he wrote the panurythmy and some of those are also songs but he also wrote 200 songs some of those are in an, in an ancient sacred language called Vatan. Okay. Uh, and actually, I thought I might just, um, as this is about voice, I thought I might just sing you one. Oh, I'd love um, And uh, see how that comes across. I'll just do one, one round of it. It's called Venia Venia, which is May the Blessed One Come. Wow. Venia 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 So you're tuning yourself, and they, they kind of convey his vibration. Mm, I can hear uh, it. Yes. Yeah, and 
at the same time, you're tuning your system, which obviously is very familiar mm. with you. He, mm. he explained that the, the original function of religion was, was one of harmonizing yourself with the invisible world and, and, and those, those other entities and beings. And panurythmy does this as well. So if you do the movements of panurythmy and all the exercises which I do every morning, then they harmonize the system in, in a way that can only be described when you felt it. Beautiful. Were those movements totally original to his being, so to speak? Yes, absolutely. Um, and in one or two of the songs actually have their own movements. So there's a one without fear, without darkness, which is the one that actually for today, it's the Friday song, oh. uh, also in Bataan. Wow. Uh, and that has its own movements of opening and closing and then blessing. And it's really exquisite to do this. Oh, my goodness. It'd be wonderful to actually uh, to be able to witness that as well at some point. Because also, again, probably since I last saw you, I went to India and was very much touched by the luminary in Andamai Ma. Um, oh, yes. Our, our neighbour is a great devotee of hers. Oh, great. Yes. Yeah, it's so interesting. I've come across her in France quite a bit. Another friend of mine who was, was walking in the Languedoc area found a, a church or a chapel, even devoted, dedicated to Anandamaya, I think. I'll find out exactly and let you know about that. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Because she, she showed up in dreams. And I, funnily enough, I was on Crete, the island of Crete, um, when I was having these dreams of her. And we were doing a gathering with, with Ramdas in France. And he said, I want to show some of the do a slideshow of the greatest saints of the 20th century. And one of them was Ananda Mai. And as soon as I saw her, I realized that's who I'd been dreaming of. And the rest is history, really. I mean, that just completely took over my whole relationship with sound as a non-dual practice, mm. you know, as an understanding of really a returning to source sound being the gateway back to the source of oneself. And so accompanying that was a meeting with a master of energy movement, Masashi Minagawa, who's a master of Shintaido, Japanese form, very original form, meaning new body way. And so again, you see what you're bringing through here, what you're drawing us towards is the essential need for us as human beings to have the skills to know how to embody spirit, to know how to integrate the three major wills, if you like, of the body, to be able to connect these different qualities of love that you're describing, they're felt in the body, aren't they? I mean, they are... Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Some of the movements in particular, there's a very beautiful one called Joy of the Earth. Yes. Um, and you actually kind of stroke the earth in your movement. Oh. Um, not literally, but it's in a, in a wave, a waveform. Yes. And then there's, there are others, uh, How Happy We Are, which is a very upbeat, interesting one. And there are others for the feet um, a bit later on. Um, and there's the one that's for sunri sun rising and then the way that you have to think correctly. And then there's a, three parts to this. And so the first part is 28 movements. And then the second part um, is the sunbeams, which is my, my favorite part, um, which is all about coming from the center, involution, and going back to the center, evolution. 
yes. and and the circling around and then there's the pentagram and which stands for these five principles and you actually dance the shape of the pentagram it's quite complicated you really have to know what you're doing but uh, again it's beautiful because you're you visualize yourself as a, a ray of the sun oh, amazing beautiful the images that you're inspiring here they offer such a stability in one's mind and a sense of hope apart from else. How does this experience that, uh, you know, the blessing of this, these teachings, how have they influenced your evolving life since those early days? Obviously, you've written many books which we, we need to read. How would you recommend people that are coming to know about your understanding and your interpretation, how this relates to the new sciences, to sound, to spirituality, and your integration of these three realms? I'll come to that in a moment, but I just want to also to go back to the body. As a, as a young man, I, I, I was quite a good athlete, and, and I ran for Scotland and British universities. And, and so the body has always been something um, that I have looked after, as it were. And, and the, the emphasis on the body and, and the integration of the body as the temple of the soul, as the, the expression of the spirit, is always important. And, and, and going to the mountains, as I have in Bulgaria repeatedly, where, where this, you, know, you dance in the high mountains. So your, your body becomes a real instrument with which you are you're fine-tuning. Hmm. But in, in terms of um, introduction, the, the, the book Profit for Our Times was a collaborative project um, with Krum Vajarov, who I mentioned a moment ago, and then Maria Mitovska. They put together some selections from his lectures in, arranged in themes. And then I wrote an introduction and then introduction to each section. And um, I lightly edited um, the English because some of the translations of, of Ben Seduno's work have been done by Bulgarians only. And so they, they come out a bit mishmash. Um, they're not very idiomatic, mm -hmm. which is a pity because you know, people, in my view, I mean, being a teacher of languages, I like to get these things right. So I, I think that's a, that's a, that's a very good um, point of entry. But I was uh, talking to a friend about it this morning. And, and if you work with books, I won't really be working with that particular book myself. And of course, you can then deepen your understanding because I think it's, I think it's very important to choose a, a path and then go up the mountain. There are many paths up the mountain, but I think you have to go up the mountain on one path rather than circling around the bottom of the mountain and then spending all your time deciding um, which path you're going to take. And then you'll still find yourself at the bottom of the mountain Mm -hmm. at the end of your life, which is not really the idea. No. no, that's right. You're reminding me also of the work of Ken Carey, which I'm sure you... Oh, yes. I used to know Ken a very long time ago. I haven't Did thought... you? I haven't thought of his work for decades. Wow. Yeah, and what beautiful work it was at the time. Everybody I'm, I'm just talking to, mentioning his name to people at the moment, they're just saying, oh, I'm rereading his books now. <laughs> you know? oh. Because the connection again with sound and with the fact that our language has been, we've been so limited, humanity has been so limited by a language that was mainly primarily for commerce is one of the statements he comes out with, which I think is yeah. really helpful, you know, and, and, and hence why 
for those of us more poetically oriented, sonorous mystics and nomads, the present language of our very Victorian education system really just doesn't cut it for what's required now. But yes, I've been very, very touched myself by his communication of how we as human beings, if we can just allow ourselves to attune ourselves more deeply to the sonorous nature of the soul and to place more faith in that dimension of communication. I think one of the ways of of expressing this is is to remember that actually life is vibrational. Exactly. And 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 whether it's sound or light, and and that that's something that Tesla emphasised. He said that if you really want to understand life and its processes, you have to understand what vibration is, yeah. and and therefore emanation and tuning and levels. This is something that you pick up intuitively through the right hemisphere, and mm. um, not analytically through the left hemisphere. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you probably know the, the work of Ian McGilchrist, who's been a friend of mine for nearly 40 years, yep. um, on this on left and right hemisphere dominance. I think his fundamental point that we live in an imbalanced left hemisphere literal world, um, which doesn't understand the symbolic, uh, and which you also see in, in, in reductionism in science, which you were mentioning a moment ago, which then devalues these other ways of knowing and when in fact um, all scientific advance depends on intuitive insight and um, which is then you know worked out by the analytical mind which is what ian explains he says that the right hemisphere is, is the hemisphere of creativity and novelty mm-hmm. and once you've had an insight um, as einstein also expressed then you can send it back to the left hemisphere for reprocessing and a discursive yes. exposition of it Exactly. Um, and then it should get sent back to the, to the right hemisphere for a further intuitive integration. Exactly that. Oh my goodness, yes, absolutely. I was just watching the Infinite Potential movie of David Bombs where, and there's a mention there is, is everywhere of Einstein saying that he really didn't want to be even referred to as a scientist. He considered himself to be a musician and someone who was literally led by the imagination um, yes, I, w- I was going to bring up David Bohm, in fact, in terms of language, because I chaired at the Pari Centre Director's Cut, which is the longer version, and it's only been shown once. I think we're, we're going to have a chance of showing it again in the Scientific and Medical Network on the 17th of October. Oh, great. Um, um, I knew David Bohm quite well, or as well as one could know him, because he was an incredibly shy yes. man. One of the most brilliant individuals that I, I've met in terms of just the subtle workings of his mind. And you, you get this coming out very, very clearly in the dialogues with Krishnamurti, yes. uh, for instance. Right. Uh, and it's his little hand gestures that were so typical um, of him. He was a, a rare being um, in terms of his fundamental questioning, and not only of, in science, but also of language and, and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so he was always trying to penetrate into the core mm-hmm. of what it was he was talking about, including the, the nature of language. I remember him talking about, well, reality, that comes from rare, which is to think, and rare comes from rays, which means a thing. Reality is what you can think about, what you can conceive. And of course, if you can't conceive of it, then it's not reality for you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think what this brings us to is 
humility. Oh, yeah. That's what I picked up. Absolutely. First viewing of that movie, of the infinite potential movie, is there's a presence there that you're alluding to in describing that would seem to come from that positioning within himself of humility or the influence of his own understanding coming from a place of, I mean, I wouldn't say in his case, not knowing, but, you know, from the Buddhist point of view of, mm-hmm. of not knowing and therefore allowing the environment of listening and learning to be infused with that depth of questioning. It's like, what do I know? Do I know anything? Do I understand anything? Anything yes. I know is that I don't know. Last summer, we, we did a little pilgrimage along the Cathar route here, the Sentier Qatar, um, using Eliot's four quartets as our text for the week. In one, one of those, you'll, you'll probably know this line, the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. I feel as I mature as a being, and this time round anyway, I feel the force of that. I've said over, in some of our webinars over the last few weeks, when people become a bit too certain of, of their views, they've got the right thing, they're on the right track. Also, how much we can do to contribute to moving our culture forward at this critical time. We we do a huge amount of humility personally and as groups um, in in what what can be achieved because all of this process is vaster than any of us in any of our groups. Yes and I love how actually in in the third millennium in Ken Carey's third millennium where he talks about we don't need to get caught up in a, a kind of anxiety about numbers and the change, the transformation happening by the sheer numbers of people, that if we can just simply touch a significant number of cells of the collective, I think he described it as, is we can just infuse this new understanding within the cells of the collective. That will be enough to transform the whole of humanity. And there are these, these tipping points and phase transitions they're using in the more, more scientific language. Wow. And when the system is in a critical state, more perturbation can make that difference. Yeah. My friend Serge Beddington Behrens just written us an article oh. where he says that it's clear that the perturbation, even this perturbation, is actually not large enough for us to transform at that fundamental level because we're always trying to retreat back into our comfort zone yes. and, and the ego um, coming back to this phrase the ego seeks conformity but the soul seeks transformation and so somehow the, a retraining of the ego is what we're involved in here isn't it it's uh, which comes back to your yeah if we could fundamentally move from a sense of separation to a sense of connectedness that would be the critical move and it's something that i've i've written about for decades and and so a lot of other people you know i'm just one voice among many Mm, very very precious one so david if listeners can come towards any offerings that you're making at this time do you want to say anything about that Um, yes the main work i'm doing at the moment is through the scientific and medical network right Um, and the mystics and scientists site which is mysticsandscientists.org Mm-hmm. Um, has our upcoming events and also our consciousness conference which is beyond the brain beyondthebrain.org and then my character work which we haven't had time to look at um, if you just google inspiring purpose then that will come up and that's that's really specifically for young people 
and how to give young people a sense of potential and empowerment that they can live their lives from the inside out. They don't have to accept circumstances. They can, they can happen to life rather than life just happening to them. Well, that's beautiful. That couldn't be more important right now. And that's another conversation to have with you at a later stage is the whole way in which we can, you know, share and and make this understanding available to children. We probably will come to a close at this point. And so I just want to thank you so much. Well, I very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you, David.